This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music and maps to money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is Ian Coxhead. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Eric. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. You made the, the long journey from, uh, from, from up north. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Coxhead is, the, uh, is a professor in the Department of uh, Agricultural and Applied Economics at, uh, at Madison. How, how long have you been at uh, Madison? This is my 30th year, Eric. Wow. Okay. Yep. Congratulate! Did you get a pen set, or what was the? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I got one year closer to retirement. <laughs> but who's getting? Yeah. So maybe start. You're you're a, you're an you're an economist and 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 work on on Vietnam Southeast Asia. Uh, give us a give us a bit of uh, a, a, a peek behind the music. How did how did you get interested in in Vietnam? Yeah. So I uh, I was born in New Zealand and uh, did all of my uh, tertiary education in Australia. Okay. I grew up. Uh, as a young adolescent in the late years of the uh, Vietnam War, okay. and I was politicized by that. I ended up uh, as a college undergraduate student studying uh, East and Southeast Asian history, and during that time I had an opportunity to visit Vietnam uh, with a tour group. It turned out to be the first group of Western tourists to visit Vietnam after the war in January 1980. Wow. So, so, so it was the, a, a war conscious? Was in, in, was, were you kind of made aware in... in in Australia or in or in New Zealand? In Australia. In yeah. Australia, okay. Yeah. And uh, and with that group, we toured uh, Vietnam from north to south. And the things that I saw there and the experiences that I had there converted me from studying history to uh, learning about economics and economic development in particular. Because uh, Vietnam at that time was one of the world's very poorest countries and it was really evident uh, everywhere we went. And and which is you know a, like a nice segue to to your own research, which is sort of like what is what's the puzzle to, um, to sort of poverty and development and the role of sort of economics in in all of this. Is that right? Yeah, I think for for me and for I think a lot of people, your your uh, exposure to that kind of poverty changes your life in a pretty important way. And uh, I've been stuck on this uh, same track ever since. So uh, trying to think about. Uh, what are the causes of poverty? What are the things that alleviate it? How do people manage economic growth, and how's that? How are the gains from that growth distributed across the population? So, some of your some of your current research is uh, is kind of an interesting title about uh, sort of making it to grade ten in 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 Vietnam. And we're we're going to be unpacking a bunch of this. So, g- give us a flavor of of uh, of what you're looking at here. Yeah. So uh, the last. Approximately one generation, Vietnam has undergone a huge economic boom. You know, per capita income has doubled and then doubled again and doubled a third time, trebled, I guess. So, uh, so in, in, in perspective, how 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 rapid and, and unique has been that growth? Uh, the the speed of growth and the duration are comparable, really, only with China. Okay. Uh, not as long and not as fast as China, but but very long and very fast. So it's been, you know, it's pulled Vietnam from grinding, grinding poverty in the end of the 1980s into well into middle income status by the 2010s. That's a yeah. huge accomplishment. Yeah. 
So they've done that by uh, integrating with the global economy. Of course, uh, after the mid-1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union, their economic development model also fell apart. They had to move away from a command economy. They had to think about integrating with the capitalist part of the world. Um, right. They did so by opening initially by opening up to trade and then subsequently by uh, uh, correcting domestic policies that also inhibited business activity and investment. And they did that starting in the very late 1980s and for about a decade they engaged in a lot of economic reforms and the culmination of that was their joining the WTO in 2007. <coughs> so during that time the structure of the economy changed tremendously. Instead of being inward oriented and producing only what they needed to consume themselves, they began to specialize in goods that they could produce uh, for the rest of the world competitively and that of course was uh, overwhelmingly uh, agricultural goods, and then also low-skill, labor-intensive, uh, assembly-type manufacturing jobs. And that's where all of the growth in employment has been in Vietnam. And so um, is it, uh, and it's right to think that uh, with that with that growth that there's um, a movement from uh, rural to urban and, and uh, a decline in agricultural labor rel- relative to other sectors? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, the number of the, the share of the workforce in, in agriculture has fallen from 70% at the beginning of the 1990s to about 40% today. And that slack has been taken up by partly by manufacturing, but mostly by services, that is, the kind of jobs that you need uh, in order to set up a modern urban economy, construction, trade and transport, wholesale retail, all of those kinds of things. And that's where the majority of the new jobs are being created. And which is where your sort of research focuses in on on sort of training and the role of sort of education, educational development. So maybe tell us what is um, what is unique about education as a pathway to to training in Vietnam? Well, let me uh, let me back up one step and say yeah. that, that what we see in Vietnam is that. Uh, we've got two conflicting forces in play. One of them is the tremendously rapid growth of income, and we know that uh, when incomes rise, parents want to keep their kids in school longer, and they tend to do that. So that pushes kids into school, keeps them there for longer, keeps them through high school and maybe into college as well. But the uh, the countervailing force... Because as, as opposed to a previous era where you might need th- their agricultural labor to, to help feed yeah. the family. Yeah, that's right. So instead of uh, instead of kids dropping out of school early and working on the family farm or in the family business, the family says, well, we can afford to keep you in school and that's going to be good for everybody. So education is what economists call a merit good in that respect. Okay. But then of course the countervailing force is that the kinds of the, the overwhelming majority of new jobs being created in Vietnam don't require very sophisticated skills. They don't require mm-hmm. a high level of cognition. Uh, they certainly don't require for the most part tertiary education. And uh, because the upper part of high school, grades 10 to 12, the final three years of high school, are really focused on preparing kids to enter college, then that raises a big challenge for kids when they finish grade 9. Should I go to grade 10 uh, and then uh, essentially join an academic system that's going to be oriented towards a tertiary education? Or should is this the right moment for me to jump out and I'm 15 and join the labor force instead? And are we right to think that... That that decision to um, to drop out uh, at from on the cusp of grade ten uh, as opposed to going on to university will probably have some big effects in terms of earning potential and all kinds of yeah absolutely so the uh, the progression to grade ten <coughs> is the uh, is the gateway from blue collar employment to opportunities for to escape that and and join the white collar or professional 
labor force. If you finish school at grade nine, and you know a significant fraction of kids in Vietnam do this still, then uh, your working career will be defined by opportunities for blue-collar workers, so factory work, construction work, that kind of thing. Whereas if you go on to grade 10, then at least you have an opportunity to graduate from that with some kind of a credential which will give you uh, higher income over your lifetime and, um, and maybe better opportunities for your children as well. So in the in the say the the states for example, um, there well well not always easy. There is a pathway for like let's say someone who who dropped out for um, or or didn't go on um, to receive higher education training that they can come back and receive that at a community college or other. Or they, they, there 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 are there are pathways available for that. Is that is that easy in Vietnam? That is not easy. There is a vocational training system. Uh, it's not is regarded as very good in terms of quality or quantity of delivery. Uh, most employers say that uh, graduates from the vocational training system have to be retrained in order to do the job that they've been hired to do. <laughs> okay. So, And it's not popular. Parents don't want their kids to go to, uh, to vocational schools either. They want them and to it, And it costs money, right? And it costs money beyond, th- beyond ninth it's grade. It's not like public school. Um, so, so, the, so the outcome, the result is that the the likelihood of them st- being stuck in a uh, with a sort of glass ceiling of sort of wage levels is is pretty um, is pretty strong if they if they don't if they don't get that training um, on the on that in, in their youth as opposed to later in life. Yeah, that's right. Of course, you know there is the rare, very rare instance of someone whose uh, non cognitive ability, their entrepreneurial flair, their energy bootstrapping will, right will <laughs> will pick them up out of that. But that's those are those are extremely unusual cases. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I mean, that happens even here, where there are, but the, the you know the the disproportionate level of like sort of the, you know, so and so dropped out of school and created the billion dollar company in their in their in their garage, like right, <laughs> the Zuckerberg effect. Yeah, how many? <laughs> how many, yeah. he was he was also at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so the maybe a sense of what the of what the educational landscape looks like in Vietnam, like how many youth are enrolled and kind of when do they drop out and how does that. Uh, ebb and flow over time. Yeah. Okay, so so during this period of very rapid economic growth, we've seen a lot of filling in in terms of educational persistence. Uh, whereas kids used to finish school at sixth grade or thereabouts, okay. almost all of them now finish ninth grade. But then the question of who goes on from there is, becomes highly differentiated. Children from rich families, of course, stay in school and go on to uh, complete high school and tertiary education. Kids from poor families and Kids from ethnic minority families as well, who are uh, overwhelmingly uh, counted among the poor, they have a much harder time making that progression. It's costly for their families. It's not so clear to them what their career path would be if they uh, pursue uh, higher education. They don't have a lot of good role models for that in in many cases. And uh, all of those things, plus the pull of the labor market, the low-skill labor market, kind of adds up to a much lower uh, rate of progression from ninth to 10th grade for that group. Do the... what percentage are we talking about? Let's say out of out of a hundred students in a classroom at at ninth grade, uh, what would that class size look like at twelfth grade graduation? Um, uh, uh, about eighty five percent of kids in Vietnam over the whole country will take this tenth grade entrance exam and go on to high school. There's a pretty substantial dropout rate from tenth to twelfth grade. Okay, right. So it's not like they stay. Necessarily. Not all of them. No. Yeah. That's right. But then that uh, 15% who don't take the test is not equally distributed across the country either. They're overwhelmingly found in poorer, more remote provinces and among lower socioeconomic status households. 
and and as you pointed out, also the the exam varies um, widely by by region and by province, right? It's not it's not a national standard exam. Proven- provincial departments of education set their own exam, although there are some pretty strict guidelines about what they can and cannot do. There's some uh, parts of the exam that are common right across the country, and then some parts which are essentially optional for provinces. Are there pressures to game the to to get results to show uh, educational achievement to 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 make the exam? Um, I, know, I know that this happens in, say, like states like uh, in the U.S., like Virginia, that every student has to take the AP exam, whether they took AP class or not. And then in some cases, and so they have a terrible rate, as where other states where only the students who <laughs> basically pass take the AP exam. Like so, do, and, and they brag about those rates. Like, does is that a factor in in um, Vietnam? That that is a much more important factor with the twelfth uh, grade graduation rate, ah, okay. the, the the rate at which kids take the college entrance exam and then go on to tertiary education. That's where it really matters, and that's where there's a lot of potential to game the system. In fact, there was a very big scandal about two years ago concerning the college entrance exam. Ninth grade, I think uh, okay. the the stakes are a little lower. What what uh, one thing this is this is sort of anecdotal, but I've I've seen it enough over time. We have we're we're um, Kind of fortunate to have every every year almost uh, groups of uh, students in our youth leadership program, fifteen to seventeen year olds from from all ASEAN countries and including Vietnam. So there's always five from Vietnam, and then we used to have a, a college age students also from Vietnam, okay, similar numbers. And what struck me is that now these are not obviously the kids that are in this program are the best and the brightest for sure. Right. But 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 they are. Um, I would I would easily put them up against our the best students I've seen in the United States, and they seem to would probably outperform them easily, not just in math and science stuff, but in like the, the in, in 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 critical thinking, in um, uh, kind of uh, analytical uh, composition. Like it's it's a uh, is is there is there a, is there a flip side of this of a high achieving kind of minority? It's it seems disproportionate. I, I I it's so it's so familiar to the yeah. students we see. Yeah. So, I mean, Vietnam is, I think, uh, as a culture, it places a very, very emphasis, a very big emphasis on educational attainment. Uh, Vietnamese kids are very highly motivated to do well in school and uh, and very frequently do very well in school. And you can see that on international... serious students, too. And serious students, yeah. Uh, most of them. And, uh, and you can see that in the uh, international... Uh, uh, PISA exam scores, the the program on international student assessment, which is run by okay. the OECD. There were a few years of that where Vietnam came out very close to the top, up there with you know Finland and Singapore and other countries. Right. But then it turned out that they were gaming the system. So there are only lots certain of students. <laughs> they were, uh, I think, probably a, some fraction of children were being told, "Don't come to school tomorrow because there's something <laughs> happening that we don't want you to be a part of." And uh, that's been shown by my colleagues at University of Minnesota that the, the population of kids taking the PISA exam and, and showing Vietnam to do very well is not a good match with the population of kids overall at that age. Yeah, uh, right. So a mixed a mixed bag to say the least. So what what we're given that there is a high level of there are possibility and and, and highly educated trained Vietnamese, but we're seeing uh, these drives that tells us right that the that the labor markets have a big. Um, pull effect uh, in terms of the, the, this decision. It's not that the students yeah. aren't capable; it's that there's this um, uh, the siren song of uh, of uh, of money that they could earn and training they don't need. Yeah, well, you know, for the, the very large part, more than eighty percent of the Vietnamese labor market is in the private sector, and most of that is in relatively small firms. Uh, 
many of them just family firms as well. And so those typically are low-tech, uh, not very uh, capital-intensive kinds of activities, and that means that they don't require a lot of skills as well to operate successfully. So that, <coughs> so that it may be that non-cognitive skills like entrepreneurial flair are valued more highly than, than uh, credentials or, or cognitive ability that comes from higher training. Okay, okay. Um, and, uh, a really interesting part of your research that, that uh, it makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about, was that um, the way that poverty is associated with um, ethnic minority status. I hadn't really thought of that as, a, as an issue in Vietnam, as maybe more starkly as it would be in, in other places, like Myanmar was the country, the other case I was thinking about. But um, how is it, it you're, you're, you're claiming that it is associated with, with ethnic minority status, and wh- how does that work for the educational structure? Okay, so uh, about 15 or 16 percent of Vietnam's population are counted as ethnic minority status, and uh, and what we've seen over the last two decades is that that group of people, uh, having initially shared Vietnam's very deep poverty pretty widely with the rest of the population, has now become kind of exclusive owners of poverty in Vietnam, if I could say that. That is, uh-huh. uh, the population has been lifted out of poverty, but the rate at which the ethnic minority uh, subpopulation has risen is much much slower than that of the population of the total population, and and this is and this is a state right that 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 is trying to work to 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 achieve overcome that gap right they're they're yep. they're they're not this is not a state policy or no 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 the, no, no, the Vietnamese government has uh, an admirably strong concentration on uh, on uh, maintaining or promoting equality. Of course, that's, you know, that's part of uh, the, the socialist uh, constitution of the country as well. Yeah. But it's a difficult problem because ethnic minority populations in Vietnam, first of all, they live in remote areas. They depend mostly on agriculture, which is the least dynamic sector of the economy. Um, they have language barriers and perhaps discrimination barriers to overcome. So there's a lot of obstacles in the path of, uh, of lifting them at the same rate as the rest of the population. And we see this in education as well, that kids from ethnic minority households drop out of school earlier, uh, take this 10th grade entrance exam at a much, much lower rate than others, uh, and do much more poorly on the exam as well. Another... Another interesting trend line you you showed was that uh, we might expect that in a, in a, in developing societies that as real incomes increase um, that kids stay longer in school, which is might be, but but you're showing that that's that's not always the case. That as as real income is increasing in in Vietnam, that kids aren't in fact staying longer in school. Um, so why is it was that a false assumption I made in the first place, or or what's happening in Vietnam? No, the average on average, kids are staying longer in school and doing better. But then we've got to dig behind that average, and that's what this okay. research is about. So when we look at the average, it looks good. Vietnam, compared with other countries at similar stages of development, is doing at least as well as those countries. But then that average uh, has a, a, an upper tail, which is kids from wealthy households, kids with opportunity and privilege and all the rest. They really pull that average up. And then there's a pretty long left tail, that is a lower tail, of kids who have less opportunity and are not really... Uh, not really pulling through the system in the same way. So the, the advances in the economy as a whole are not directly translating into significant increases in opportunity or attainment by those children. Which, which over time could lead to a real, a real gap in sort of wages of two groups of over time, Vietnamese, right? Over time, we'll, we'll in greatly, if it's not corrected, will greatly increase inequality in Vietnam. 
Right now, inequality is kind of low in Vietnam, at least by international standards. But there's no reason that it should stay low. There's no intrinsic reason why it will stay low. And uh, this process will certainly increase it. How does, how does globalization <laughs> affect schooling? What role does it play? Well, it has, uh, it, it has a very big role to play, and it has a contradictory role. On the one hand, globalization is an opportunity for Vietnam to uh, increase income by specializing in uh, the kinds of goods and services that Vietnam can produce competitively re relative to the rest of the world. So that's been a very, very big contributor to overall income growth. That income growth translates into higher demand for education by households for their children and so on. On the other hand, the kind of globalization experience that Vietnam has had up till now has been one based on exploitation or, or taking advantage of a very large, low-skilled labor force. And that says that most of the job growth that's taken place has been in relatively low-skilled jobs. So then kids who are uh -huh. getting to the age where they might stay in school or they might join the labor force, around about 15, uh, may have pressure from their family because of higher income to stay in school. But then the uh, job market is saying, well, you know, if you leave at ninth grade and get a job, we're going to pay you just about the same as if you left it tw after 12th grade. So if you're going to go to 12th grade but not do tertiary schooling, then you're not going to get a whole lot of uh, gain uh, for that extra three years that you spent out of the labor force in school. And I guess uh, and it seems it seems obvious, but it right, is, am I right in thinking that a, a, a major problem to that line of thinking is that those are the kind of jobs that as the global market could move and switch um, countries uh, – the they can go away and you're left without as if if you don't have skills training or educational levels then then you don't have a job yeah that's right and that's the dilemma for a lot of people i mean vietnam like most developing countries doesn't have a well-developed adult education system so that the uh, the range of second chances for people who leave school early is very very limited indeed that kind of says that the skills that you come out of school with are going to be the skills that you carry with you throughout your working career. If you're lucky enough to get some training on the job, uh, most people are not, uh, at least the kind of training yeah. that really matters, then uh, then that's great. But for most people, blue-collar jobs don't involve that kind of training. Tell us about, uh, as a historian, I'm always interested in change over time. Like, what, like if we look at sectors like industry, agriculture, services, what, what happens to the structure of, of employment over time in industries like these that are good, good indicators. Right. So since the beginning of the, uh, the modern reform period in Vietnam, since the beginning of the 1990s effectively, the share of population in agriculture has fallen dramatically from 70% to 40% today. Uh, the corresponding uh, shares of industry and services have risen very substantially. So if you think about the parents of the current generation of school kids, uh, when they were thinking about what to do at age 15, they would have looked around and said, okay, chances are if I leave school, I'll be working on the farm. Yeah. Uh, whereas the current generation of kids say, chances are if I leave school, I'll be working in an industrial park or in an urban uh, or peri-urban area uh, of services around that. Right, and, and, and autonomy and disposable income that they might not have had. That like the, sure. It's, it's, an yeah. it's an attractive... Yep. Short-term proposition. Absolutely, they get out of the they get out of the countryside. <laughs> they uh, they get some independence. They uh, they have you know there's some real money to be made if you get the right kind of job uh, in those sectors. Right, the right job at the right time, which are but yep. which are part of the problem. Of, yeah, you know. but the real issue is that the the lifetime earnings profile for those blue-collar yeah. workers is very flat. So that you'll uh, you'll ramp up with a little bit of experience over the first few years, but then you can't really expect that uh, you're, that getting older will result in higher 
uh, earnings later on in life in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s. Right. And as as uh, as bodies wear out, as you know, um, like yep. old age is not kind to this kind of this kind of wage labor uh, that is that is can be physically demanding. Is it physically demanding work? Some of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, the factory. Well, obviously, construction work and that kind of thing certainly yeah. is. Uh, as is agriculture, the uh, the labor force in factories themselves, which is a kind of a small share of the total labor force, but a significant share, uh, that that's work that revolves around uh, uh, precision activities repeated many many times. So it's really good for you know nimble young fingers. Uh, with, 18, good, with good eyes. With good eyes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eighteen to twenty-four year old, roughly speaking, and beyond that, it's not a it's not a great job at all uh, from either side. How does gender factor into some of your test-taking data? Well, um, uh, the uh, the pattern in Vietnam is that girls do much better on tests and also <laughs> typically uh, take the test at a much higher rate than boys. And if you ask Vietnamese people why that is, then all of the girls will give you the same answer, which is that boys are kind of lazy. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the boys agree with that. Uh, substantively, what's going on is that, you know, the Vietnamese labor market, like many such labor markets, rewards boys at a higher rate for the same okay. level of achievement. So girls have to work harder in order to just to stay up. So there, there are there is there's an actual male privilege that that uh, that gives them a opportunities that that girls are going to have to work twice as hard to get. Yeah, we see that in the labor market. Of course, you know there are there are substantive differences between the sexes in in adult labor markets as well. Women drop out to have children and that kind of thing. Even in Vietnam, although the birth rate is very very low there. But yeah, the labor market rewards boys at a higher rate for the same work than girls. The 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 issue of what are what are some other factors that um, maybe we need to consider that uh, like why should we why should we care who conti- who continues to grade um, ten and twelve uh, what are what are what's the full range of like thinking about this yeah. So there are two things to think about. One is a macro issue and the other is a micro equity issue. The macro issue is that countries that want to sustain growth through middle income, as Vietnam is uh, striving to do, have to invest and have to invest heavily and have to invest strategically in building their stock of human capital, that is, in, in educating and training their labor force to be a creative economy so that they can do more than just uh, assemble smartphones for Samsung, for example. So at the macro level, you want to make sure that all the kids who are capable of uh, learning stay in school uh, right up till they've reached their maximum potential. That's a very important thing because that says that uh, the next generation is going to have a much more highly skilled labor force, a more creative economy, a more responsive economy, and that's going to make sure that economic growth is sustained uh, even after the factory jobs go away, which they inevitably will. At the micro level, uh, we've already alluded to the differences between wealthy and poor households and ethnic majority and ethnic minorities. Um, These kinds of differences are likely to be exacerbated if all of the educational opportunities that are available are taken up by kids from the the wealthier part of society or the ethnic majority part of society. That's going to open up a very substantial gap. Uh, in terms of equality of uh, outcomes from the current generation, and that in turn will be transmitted to the next generation as well because we know that children inherit most of their opportunities from their parents' circumstances. Can you say a bit about, in, in, in this kind of research, uh, economists talk about the uh, skills premium. Um, what, what does that mean and why is, it, uh, why is it a big factor? 
Yeah. So think of the school premium as the as the premium that you earn by having uh, a higher level of education or a, or a professional credential relative to someone who say completed school at ninth grade and then dropped out into the into the labor market. So that premium is a, is your reward for staying out of the labor force for extra time uh, and acquiring extra skills, extra cognitive ability, or extra credentials. Now, typically, we think of that premium as rising during the course of economic development because economies become more sophisticated. Uh, there's greater demand for people with uh, uh, particular uh, qualifications, accountants, lawyers, doctors, engineers, that kind of thing. But the pattern of uh, growth in Vietnam, although, of course, it has included in, uh, big increases in demand for all of those professions, has really been dominated by growth in blue-collar labor demand. If we if we look over for comparative examples in similar kinds of growth that uh, that Vietnam is currently uh, or or the situation that it finds with its labor market, um, what are what are comparative examples and what have they resulted in? Yeah. Okay. So here's where I irritate my Thai and Indonesian friends, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> they're not here in the we, room. So. So uh, Thailand had a huge economic boom during the nine, uh, basically a decade of double-digit economic growth from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s. And during that time, uh, their experience looked a lot like the experience okay. of Vietnam in the first decade of the 21st century. That is, lots and lots of investment, especially foreign investment, going into factories that do assembly operations, uh, machinery, garments, footwear, furniture, that kind of thing. So the, these these relatively attractive industrial jobs that could be had for with minimal... Um, training. Yeah, that's right. That were yeah. leapt at by. Yeah, and in the decade from 1985 uh, to 1994, uh, around about 20% of the Thai agricultural labor force walked off the farm, literally walked off the farm and went to Bangkok and got those kinds of jobs. Wow. Now, they had most of them, almost all of them, had almost no education at all, maybe sixth grade, in a few cases more than that. And, you know, that's great when you're young. You can still uh, be nimble and you can still yeah. uh, get a good job. But then uh, the experience of Thailand was that after uh, about 1997, a lot of those jobs started moving offshore, uh, moving away from Thailand. And then uh, people who had joined the labor market with relatively low education uh, enjoyed a decade of employment and then found themselves with very limited opportunities afterwards. So that's one model that uh, I think Vietnam should be very keen to learn from and avoid. We could talk about Indonesia as well, but... Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I, I want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, different case in Indonesia, somewhat different. Of course, Indonesia has a great deal of natural resource wealth. First decade okay. of the 21st century, there was a boom in resource prices, uh, minerals prices, energy prices, uh, all of those things. And Indonesia uh, had a huge export growth windfall from that, mostly driven by Chinese demand, of course. Now, during that time, uh, that windfall made it much much less profitable for manufacturing industry to operate because their costs were being driven up. They were competing for wage for uh, for skilled labor, competing for all kinds of labor for that matter. And so there was a kind of a slump in the uh, growth rate of manufacturing in Indonesia during that time. The jobs that really expanded were service sector jobs. So think of uh, motorcycle taxi drivers, uh, people working in construction, people okay. working in uh, all of those kinds of areas, mostly informal jobs, that is, uh, people without labor contracts, without benefits, without job stability assurances of any kind. And so once again you saw you know, a couple of cohorts of Indonesians dropping out of school very early, getting these kinds of jobs, doing okay during the boom, but then when, when the boom went away, that is at the end of the first decade of the 21st century, 
uh, resource prices started to fall again. Uh, a lot of the impetus came out of those sectors, and that left a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of partially disguised unemployed. Yeah. Um, the I w you you mentioned something that made me uh, think of an earlier question, which was what I what is the labor union situation in in Vietnam? Does it does it try to address any of these, or how does it work in concert with the government? What what is what does that look like in a in a country like Vietnam? Yeah, I'm not a specialist on labor unions. The, uh, the, the most of the formally constituted labor unions in Vietnam are, are essentially part of the state apparatus, but of course the vast majority of the labor force is not unionized. So people working in agriculture, people working in family farms, self-employed, uh, which is more than half of the labor force in total. Well, more than half. Uh, they are not unionized. You you look at. Um, several areas in you know, across Vietnam, and you're you're always always looking for more. Give us a give us a, a sense of some of the uh, some of the locations and how they differ regionally in their outcomes. Oh yeah, okay. So uh, anyone who's been to Vietnam will will have seen uh, for, with their own eyes the tremendously rapid growth and the huge dynamism of its uh, two very big cities, that is Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. Ho Chi Minh City accounts for about two thirds of the growth in the country as a whole. Uh, you can see that in really? terms of oh yeah, it's huge, yeah, and it's it's a you know it's a true mega city these days. Yeah. So uh, for people living in those cities, of course, that's been a really big advantage. But what we have seen is tremendously large rate of migration from the other parts of the country into those cities, especially into Ho Chi Minh City and its uh, surrounding metropolitan area. So that the distribution of new jobs and new opportunities and rising incomes has been geographically very unequal, uh, mostly concentrated in cities. Uh, the countryside getting pulled up first by people leaving, so reducing the number of mouths to feed at home, and second by sending back remittances from their jobs in the city uh, to sustain their family or their parents uh, in their old age. Is the Vietnamese government interested in... I mean, of course, they probably would be interested, but what what, uh, what do they think about these kinds of questions? Is this something that, that, that troubles them, or is it, uh, is it that, you know... Um, don't upset the apple cart when you know that people are better off than they were a generation ago or what what's the kind of response to these kinds of observations in the in, in on a government level yeah, you know I think the Vietnamese government faces a very genuine dilemma uh, on the one hand they don't want to uh, kill the goose that lays the golden egg so they want to promote uh, additional investment especially inward foreign investment but of course most of the investment that's coming in is in the form of uh, uh, factories and, and fabrication plants that are employing mostly low-skilled people. So that's, I mean, overall that's a benefit for the country. But then it creates this tension with education and the Vietnamese, that is a policy problem that lands in the lap of the Vietnamese Ministry of Education and Training, MOET. So they have to then figure out ways to induce kids to stay in school and to resist the opportunity that the labor market presents them with. And I think, you know, in the cities that's not so difficult. Uh, schools in cities are better, families are richer, the opportunities for higher education are abundant. But where it really matters is in the kind of last mile uh, provinces and regions of the country, uh, poorer areas, more remote areas that don't have a huge amount of foreign investment and job creation themselves, so that the path to... Uh, uh, to riches, if you like, lies mostly in out-migration to the cities. That's where it's much more difficult to keep kids in school and to promote a higher rate of education overall. So in the, so in the urban areas, there's a sense, sim maybe similar to 
developed uh, parts of the world where everyone has to f- needs to finish primary education. It's a, it's a um, uh, or secondary. Like you need to, you need to graduate high school. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's uh, that way in uh, some of the more remote provinces. Yes. Yeah. Right. So kids, kids in cities, like kids in cities everywhere, have both the opportunity and the incentive to uh, stay at school, to do well in school, and to go on from school to tertiary training or professional training. But in the countryside, you know, the role model, this is a new experience for Vietnam. So the parents of the current generation of children are themselves not necessarily very highly educated, may not understand uh, fully what it means to keep the kids in school, may not understand fully what it means to uh, make an investment in their education of that kind. And we have to add, I think we have to give a little shout out to a very special group here as well. The very high rate of out-migration for employment in Vietnam over the last uh, 15 to 20 years has left a substantial number of children, around about 8% of households, uh, with only one or even no uh, parent uh, taking care of the kids. So kids are left in the, in the care of uh, typically of grandparents. And if the parents themselves are a generation that doesn't have the same experience as, uh, as current kids, well, of course, grandparents are one generation even further removed from that. And the anecdotes about that are, you know, grandparents don't understand what kids are doing on their phones. Uh, they don't really understand <laughs> right. the meaning of homework. Uh, well, I was just going to ask the level of parental involvement. Is yeah, it's low. Th- th- low for the, and especially even exacerbated by kind of latchkey kids or don't, don't have... Yeah, children left behind is what we call them. And, yeah. uh, you know, the parents are doing the right thing for the household in the big picture. That is, they're going off to work where they can earn real salaries and then they're sending money home. But they, for many households, not all, uh, the missing link is that the children then uh, don't have the kind of uh, household and or family environment that promotes their uh, performance in school. So what, um, if you were... Uh if you were um, education czar, <laughs> what what, uh, what policy what policy suggestions would you would you give to Vietnam, or would you would you, a magic wand would you institute uh, or hope were instituted? Right. So uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure exactly how to answer that, uh, <laughs> but you know what we can see is that this. Uh, uh, the, the problem of low rates of educational succession from ninth to 10th grade and beyond is you know, really a problem that is becoming concentrated uh, both regionally and in subpopulations in the same way that poverty is before. They're almost identical. So that in one, you know, at the very broadest level, dealing with this is uh, very closely linked to dealing with the problem of uh, left behind economic growth groups, that is the ethnic minority groups in Vietnam. The, uh, the other part of that is education policy itself, which is what kind of curriculum, what kind of school experience, what kind of school cost structure is going to induce the kids who should stay in school to actually stay in school and to do well as well. Those are much bigger uh, educational policy problems. Vietnam government has been tinkering with uh, things like uh, 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 partial boarding schools for ethnic minority uh-huh. kids. Uh, kids who face a long commute to school every day can go and stay at the school from Monday to Friday uh, continuously. But it's not obvious that that's having the effect that they uh, that they strive for, at least not yet. Are schools equally invested in by the government? Is there is there kind of a national mandate or does that have something to do with population or, or how does the what what are the, the the kind of resources that schools have? Um, how does that get allocated, school yeah. by school? 
Yeah. Uh, Vietnam's government invests very heavily in education. It, it takes up about 20% of the national budget, which is a, which is yeah. a pretty high number. Um, uh, how that gets distributed across schools is uh, a little bit less obvious. Of course, you know, every country experiences the challenge of uh, uh, getting good teachers to stay in uh, uh, sparsely populated areas, remote areas. Right. Uh, that's, that's not unique to Vietnam by any means. So there's that. Uh, schools are further apart for sparse populations in remote areas, and that's a challenge that uh, is very difficult to overcome indeed. Well, um, give us a, maybe we can, uh, we can turn to some, some time for plugs. Uh, <laughs> what to, if, uh, if folks are interested in, uh, uh, in hearing more about, learning more about this, well, where should they, where should they look? What are some of the, some of the publications, sites, other, other initiatives that are of interest? Yeah. Uh, if I were to choose just one, uh, it would be easy. I would choose the, uh, the website run by UNICEF in Vietnam. If, if, if our listeners are interested in learning more about, about Vietnam, about sort of the education situation, about uh, as it relates to development, where would you steer them? Okay. So if I was going to choose just one source, uh, the very best source would be the website of the uh, Vietnam office of UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Education Fund. Okay. Um, uh, uh, UNICEF's mandate is for uh, is very much focused on children and on uh, on mothers, and they have a number of really really good studies that take the kind of data that I've been working with, as well as other data, and then turn that into I think very accessible publications that document uh, and quantify uh, educational development uh, constraints, challenges to education right across the uh, the country, and very very cognizant too of the broader macroeconomic circumstances, of the things that I've been talking about in terms of uh, job market changes, skill premia, uh, last mile provinces, and so on. Uh, well, well, great. We hope, our, we hope people avail themselves of that, uh, of that information. Well, Ian, thanks, for, thanks again for coming to NIU, and uh, don't hesitate to come back soon. Thanks, Eric. It's a great pleasure being here. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.